Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, ASHP, and thank you for joining us today for Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Kelly Gamble, and I'm the current PGY2 Infectious Diseases Pharmacy Resident at Ascension Seton in Austin, Texas, and I will be your host for today's podcast. With me today is Catherine Merkel from St. David's HCA Healthcare, also in Austin, Texas, and her interest areas include both infectious diseases and pediatrics. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Let's go ahead and get started with today's topic, which is the clinical practice guideline for the diagnosis and treatment of acute homogenous osteomyelitis in children. So to start, can you just explain a little bit why we're focusing on these guidelines today? Yeah, so these guidelines were published in August of last year, and they're actually the first national guideline to address this topic. They were jointly developed by panel members representing both Pediatric Infectious Disease Society and Infectious Disease Society of America. And they actually included a physician um, right here from the Austin area. And we have waited a long time for these guidelines to come out. The development actually started in 2011 and has taken 10 years to complete from start to finish. This is one of the few guidelines published by IDSA that focuses solely on children. It is important that there are some populations that were excluded, such as neonates, and that's just due to differences in pathogenesis, management, and outcomes, but also other causes of osteomyelitis, like those from fungus or mycobacterium. And the guideline also doesn't include other causes of osteomyelitis, such as that from open fractures, decubitus ulcers, vascular insufficiency, or those that are device-related. So what exactly makes AHO different from these other causes that you just mentioned? So hematogenous means originating in or carried by the blood. So this type of osteomyelitis happens when bacteria travels in the bloodstream to the bone and elicits some sort of host response. So children have rich vascular supply and rapidly growing bones, which makes this cause more likely compared to direct inoculation or contiguous spread, which we commonly see in adults. More than half of the cases of AHO occur in children less than five years of age. And due to the bone anatomy and corresponding blood supply, AHO most frequently impacts long bones, like the femur, tibia, or humerus, and it typically only affects one bone. How do children typically present with this infection? So the most common clinical features are pain and fever. However, the signs and symptoms of pain can vary depending on the age of the child. Younger children may only show subtle signs, such as refusal to bear weight or use of an extremity. So for example, if a child was walking, but then started to crawl, that might be an indication that that something more is going on. However, in older active children, they can actually mistake the signs and symptoms for a sprain. Localized signs and symptoms such as redness, swelling, warmth, tenderness, you know, can be present, but not always. 
More severe presentations can occur with children presenting with sepsis or septic shock. And it's important to point out that this guideline focuses on acute presentation, which is defined by the guideline as from when the signs and symptoms started to when the child presents, that that's only been going on for about four weeks. So from the way you describe this, the signs and symptoms of AHO are more nonspecific. So how exactly do we make a diagnosis? So the diagnosis, I mean, really does rely heavily on the history and physical exam. But there are some additional tests that can help you, you know, rule out more serious diagnoses, but also help you identify a causative pathogen and assist you in monitoring response to treatment. So, for example, an X-ray of the affected area can rule out other causes, but a negative X-ray you know, doesn't necessarily rule out AHO as a cause. And that's because, you know, it can take up to three to 10 days to see early changes on an x-ray that suggests AHO. So in those cases, oftentimes either an MRI, a CT, you know, and or an ultrasound can be needed to confirm a diagnosis. However, in children, um, because we want to reduce radiation exposure and MRI is really the preferred method. From a lab standpoint, a CRP or C-reactive protein is gonna be elevated in most cases. And it's unique in that it can actually be monitored over time in order to you know, help clinicians assess response to treatment. And the CRP has really replaced the ESR in children in monitoring this type of disease state. And that's just because the ESR rises and decreases much more slowly than the CRP. AHO's you know, source is the bloodstream. Blood cultures obtained prior to any cultures you know, can help you identify that causative pathogen. However, obtaining specimens directly from the bone increase likelihood of pathogen identification from about 30% up to 50%. Knowing that it does take time to coordinate with specialists to obtain and even get culture results from the bone, when should antibiotic therapy be initiated? So that's really going to depend on the child's presentation. So, you know, if they present with sepsis or septic shock, then antibiotics should be started immediately. However, there are studies out there that show if antibiotics are given, you know, before or after cultures, as long as antibiotics are started within 24 to 48 hours, um, that you're going to have a similar identification rate of pathogens. So if a child presents and is stable, the guidelines actually give the option to withhold antibiotics and monitor the child, you know, while these are made to obtain these cultures from the bone. However, you know, they do give some guidance to approach this cautiously because any delay in appropriate therapy is associated with risk of local injury or tissue damage. So ideally institutions have planned ahead and have the resources and a plan in place to work together from the ED to the OR to efficiently make a diagnosis, obtain imaging and cultures at the same time, to limit any unnecessary sedation or radiation exposure, and then start antibiotics right after. Since we're talking about empiric antibiotic selection here, 
what are the most common pathogens associated with AHO that we would want to cover? So Staph aureus is the most common pathogen, but some less common pathogens include Streptococcus pyogenes or group A strep and Kingella kingi. And I really like asking, you know, students and residents about these less common pathogens so unique to the pediatric population, especially Kingella. It's almost exclusively identified in preschool age children or children presenting with respiratory symptoms because it's a gram-negative short bacilli that resides in the oral pharyngeal area. Since Staph aureus is the most common pathogen, it's important to know about resistance rates because that's going to better inform what empiric antibiotic you choose. And so really, it's good to think about it in two ways. You know, do I need to cover for MRSA, yes or no? And then if I do, you know, what agents do I choose? So if your local or institutional data suggests that among Staph aureus isolates, more than 10 to 20% are methicillin resistant, then the guidelines recommend that you include MRSA coverage you know, in your empiric antibiotic selection. And I think that this is probably the case for most centers in the United States. But if you're one of those lucky few where Staph aureus is still primarily methicillin susceptible, then in that case, you can use cefazolin or nafcillin or oxacillin. And then in that case, you can use cefazolin or nafcillin and oxacillin. So for this indication in pediatric populations, cefazolin, nafcillin, and oxacillin are all considered therapeutically equivalent based on in vitro data and the retrospective studies that are available. So otherwise, you should plan to include an anti-MRSA agent in your empiric antibiotic selection. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean specifically by an anti-MRSA agent? Do you mean clindamycin or vancomycin maybe? So this is another it depends answer. So, you know, both agents are active against MRSA. And there's no data in the pediatric population for this indication that from an efficacy standpoint, you know, one is better than the other. However, from a safety standpoint, clindamycin is preferred because it lacks nephrotoxicity risk that vancomycin has, and it offers an oral dosage form. So, you know, in addition to knowing your local and institutional staph aureus isolates, what percentage are methicillin resistant, you also need to know your clindamycin resistance rates. And the guidelines also chose that 10 to 20% threshold for when facilities need to consider switching from clindamycin to vancomycin for empiric antibiotic selection to cover for MRSA. So how does your institution specifically approach these recommendations about how to decide on the best empiric antibiotics for these patients? So at our institution, about 50% of the Staph aureus isolates were methicillin resistant, which meant, according to the guidelines, we needed to include an anti-MRSA agent in our empiric antibiotic selection. Our clindamycin resistant rate amongst MRSA isolates was about 15%, which meant we needed to consider vancomycin as our go-to empiric antibiotic. At the time that these guidelines 
were published, we were utilizing clindamycin as our empiric antibiotic. So changing to vancomycin would have been a fairly significant change. However, we also noticed a rise in clindamycin resistance, not only amongst MRSA, but MSSA as well. So we felt you know, like we needed to make a change in our empiric antibiotic to adequately cover MRSA and MSSA. However, you know, we had really two concerns about using vancomycin routinely. So one being the risk of toxicity, but two uh, being the challenges in selecting an oral step-down therapy. So luckily, you know, the guidelines actually do provide some guidance for this type of scenario for children that present, you know, stable and without toxic presentations. So in these situations, the guidelines actually recommend uh, cefazolin or oxycillin or nafcillin as a reasonable option for stable children that are being observed. And that's so that we maximize that coverage of MSSA. However, if children present unstable, or with toxic appearing presentations, when MRSA may be more likely, and you do have these high clindamycin resistance rates, then vancomycin would be the preferred agent. Hold on a second. So I know in adults, you can use oral therapy for osteomyelitis, but we can do this in the pediatric population too. I thought that bone and joint infections could only be treated with IV antibiotics, especially if the infection was um, from the bloodstream. So the guidelines, you know, provided a systematic review that found that treatment outcomes were comparable in children treated with oral compared to IV antibiotics, and specifically with children that received long durations of IV antibiotic treatment, they had higher complication rates, you know, more unscheduled revisits and rehospitalizations compared to those that got the oral therapy. So despite the level of evidence being low, you know, the guidelines make a strong recommendation to transition quickly to oral therapy. And then, you know, thinking about this question around bacteremia and using oral antibiotics, the guidelines, you know, don't consider this staph aureus bacteremia encountered with AHO to carry the same risk as it does in, in adult populations especially in patients that demonstrate, you know, clinical improvement, their fever goes away, they have decreased local signs of inflammation, you know, they're able to move, move around more easily, and they have reassuring lab data, like those decreasing CRPs. You know, really, the point being is that, you know, once an identification is made of a pathogen and, sus and susceptibility is confirmed, then a broad spectrum IV therapy should be transitioned to the narrow, narrow spectrum. And that may be from, you know, IV to IV, or it could be from IV to oral therapy. So if a patient was on cefazolin or oxacillin or nafcillin IV therapy, they would most often be transitioned to um, cephalexin. And, you know, as I mentioned, when patients are on vancomycin, that can be challenging to transition to an oral therapy. So the guidelines, you know, recommend in that case that patients can be transitioned to clindamycin really for a couple of reasons. You know, if that susceptibility is confirmed, 
you know, or the risk of continuing vancomycin outweighs the benefits. So I mentioned earlier the challenges when patients are on vancomycin therapy transitioning to oral therapy. And so the guidelines recommend that children can be transitioned to clindamycin or cephalexin if susceptibility to those agents are confirmed or the risk of continuing vancomycin outweighs the benefits. You know, and we have some sort of knowledge that the child is not colonized with MRSA which really points to that MSSA is the most likely pathogen, especially in cases where the pathogen was maybe not identified. And, you, and that's because in the pediatric population, other oral agents that we think about with activity against MRSA are not well studied, you know, such as linazolid or, or doxycycline or Bactrim. I really appreciate, you know, in these guidelines, I would encourage you to check out the antibiotic dosing table which overall emphasizes, you know, choosing doses at the higher end of the dosing range and dosing in shorter intervals, you know, i.e. More, more frequently. And despite longer durations of therapy being recommended in the past, so up to six weeks of therapy, there has also been evidence to show that failure rates are similar with shorter durations and prolonged durations are also associated with adverse events. So the guidelines actually recommend only three to four weeks of therapy. And that's counting, you know, that initial IV therapy and that oral therapy combined. So, you know, there's still a lot of unanswered questions from um, on this topic, but the guidelines definitely give us a good starting place. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how providers and institutions respond to the recommendations. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for providing us these updates on the pediatric AHO guidelines. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners do too. If you haven't before, I encourage everyone to check out ASHP's Pediatric Resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings in the Pediatric Resource Center, including disease-specific articles and guidelines, webinars and links for education, as well as training. Thanks again for tuning in for this session with us today. And join us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with other ASHP members regarding content on a variety of other clinical topics. Be sure to subscribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.